0: rabbit, and turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to be picking up there in verse uh, 22, right where we left off last week. Uh, while you're turning there, I, w- I want to point out something that's like incredibly obvious. Um, it's something that could easily go without saying, but something I really think it's it's kind of important for us to uh, take note of the fact, okay, uh, that it is now November, um, and, and you, you are aware of that. I, I understand that, but um, that means that we 're entering into the eleventh month of, of Rivercrest worshiping together as a body here in lexington um, and and the reason that this Sunday stands out to me uh, is because this is the uh, with daylight savings time rolling back um, you know or falling back, whatever it reminds me of that Sunday back in March when we lost an hour of sleep, and some of you in this room remember. That Sunday, too, when we were sort of dragging ourselves into uh, that gym over on North Lake Drive. There had been a birthday party in the gym, obviously, or three or four the day before. It was in particularly rough shape that morning. We were doing a lot of cleaning, and everybody was just, just... Maybe feeling a little sorry for ourselves in that moment that we were setting up a, a gymnastics gymnasium to to worship in, uh, and I remember that we prayed together uh, there everybody who was there setting up. I, I remember us praying that that God would grant us the privilege of being able to gather together when when we got the extra hour back uh, that, that if we would that if he would carry us to this point, that would be some sort of Accomplishment, and, and, and I know that might not seem like much, man, uh, but if we don't celebrate the fact that God has provided for us in incredible and profound ways over the course of this year, uh, then, then we're not doing our job as his children. Uh, we, we heard our kids say, what should we pray for? And the first thing that was mentioned is the things that we're thankful for. The first thing, what are we thankful for? So often we miss that. We just fall into our... Our rhythms we fall into the cadence of life, and if you if you maybe you don't know this, but life just flies by, and we get into that, and it just marches on and marches on, and we forget to pause and be thankful, uh, but today is worth celebrating. I know it's just November fourth on your calendar, but this is an important day in the life of of this church and and really every Sunday that we have here is a gift from our God who who If you haven't paid attention, he's made it really clear he's up to something here in in this work, and we're excited about what he's doing. So this is a testament, okay? Today is a testament uh, to the power and the provision of our God and our God alone. So would you stand with me now, and let's turn our attention to the Word of God in John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 22, and we'll go through uh, 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly.' Jesus answered them, "'I told you, and you do not believe.' I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am. And in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together. God, we don't take that for granted. I thank you for the fact that we've entered into the part of the year where it's not 100 degrees in this room. I thank you that we can hear the sounds of, of babies in the nursery and children playing outside these doors. That, 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 that you have blessed us in ways that are beyond beyond our imagination, that we have families and young people here playing together and learning the truths of your word. Lord, I pray that you would be at work amongst us now. In just these next few minutes, would you, would you just melt away the distractions of this life? Allow us the opportunity right now to hear from you through your word. Lord, do that. Do that for your children. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How many, how many of you uh, have ever been to one of those uh, corn mazes? Yeah, it's okay. You can raise your hand. I know we're Presbyterian, but we're not dead. You, you, just go ahead. You've been to a corn maze? Yep. All right. All right. So you know at least, some of you know at least something of, of what I'm about to say. Um, a few years back, uh, actually just two years ago, Laurie and I took a group, uh, we took our kids and a group of students to one of the corn mazes here in town, the one... Out there, there's the scary part that we didn't take the kids. That's the like deceased farm thing. Now, that we, we weren't into that, okay? But uh, because I'm a scaredy cat, not because the kids are. My four year old would love it. But anyway, uh, so we go into the corn maze with that and a bunch of youth from the church. Had like 25 or 30 kids with us at the time. We launched out into the maze. Uh, again, Logan was with me. He's two at the time, all right? So we're kind of carrying him at that point, but he wanted to get down and, and explore. Um, so I put him down, and if you've ever been, if those of you have been, you know, uh, you go at night because that's supposed to make it more fun, I, I guess. And so uh, we go, uh, and it's just chaos, right? I mean, it's it's a maddening situation, really. Uh, it's It's dark. Kids are Kids are just running around all over the place, and they all look like they kind of all look the same because it's dark. Like you're talking to a kid, uh, maybe this was just me, but you're talking to a child only to realize that's not your child, right? It's just another kid who's lost in the maze with you. It's dark, it's dusty, you can't see. And so very quickly, what happened, at least for us, is the whole situation morphed into basically a like survival of the fittest um, scene. it was very sort of Lord of the Flies esque, right? Like you, you might make it out, but but maybe not, right? This really could be, this could be it for you. And and so my job as as a dad was, uh, if it's every man for himself, I'm getting me and my kids, and we are going to conquer this corn maze. And for all the other kids, you know, I, I hope, I, I have hope for you uh, that maybe you'll get out or, or we'll come and find you, you know, like the next morning after daylight. Anyway, um, you see, the problem with the corn maze is that everything looks the same. Like everywhere you look, it doesn't matter if you look left, it doesn't matter if you look right, it doesn't matter if you look straight ahead. All you see is corn. And when your kid runs off with the flashlight, you don't see anything. It's just, you're just following a little light flashing above, hoping you'll, hoping you'll find him while he's just running away. You don't see anything. You're just in it like absorbed in the maze. And, and because you're down in it, you can't, you can't grasp the picture as a whole, right? You, you, but you know that if you could just kind of like zoom up, you know, get like that 30,000 foot view of this thing, and you could, you could see very quickly there's a path, that there's a way to follow that would, that would lead you back out of the maze. When we find Jesus in this passage, now, we, we see that he's still in Jerusalem, right? He's there in the temple. We're told that he's actually in the colonnade of Solomon, which is this covered area uh, on the on the eastern wall of the court of the Gentiles. It was one of the few remaining remnants of, of the original temple that Solomon built. It makes sense that he's in that area of the temple, because we're also told that crazy detail that it's winter, which is the rainy season, and so he's under this covered porch. Like Jesus is intentional about this, and John intentional in giving us these details. So he's there, and we're told in 24 that the Jews gathered around him, this is what it says, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now, that word for gathered could also be uh, translated or interpreted as they surrounded him, okay? And, And I know that doesn't sound like a big difference, but there's a big difference between a group of people gathering and a group of people surrounding someone, It's the same word that we see in Hebrews 11 to describe what Israel did at Jericho. And we know they didn't just gather at Jericho, they surrounded Jericho. It's used in Revelation 20 to describe a military siege that's going to take place. And so there's an aggressive tone to what's happening here. We can miss that. If we think they gathered, like, oh, they all came together. No, they came with purpose. And they didn't come in curiosity. The truth is that these people gathered around Jesus, they surrounded Jesus for a fight. You see, they see Jesus sort of like we see the corn maze. They see him as a challenge to overcome. And so with their feet on the ground, the problem for them is they cannot fully comprehend who Jesus is. They can't figure him out, and and they're frustrated by that. And again, a a slightly different translation there of of their question in 24 will be something like, how long are you going to annoy us? How long are you going to pester us? They say, keep us in suspense. How long are you going to bother us, Jesus? They've got their minds made up about who he is and what they're hoping They're hoping in this moment that he will finally just come out and say those words, that he'll just say, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, so that they can be done with him once and for all. But look at how he responds. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He's saying to them, look, he's saying, open your eyes. I've spoken more in what I've done than what I could ever say. There is tangible, there is a tangible, credible witness in his life that testifies as to who he is, right? Lame men are being made to walk. Don't forget this. As we've made our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen this, that men who could not walk are now walking that deaf people have had their ears open, that blind men are now seeing. Multitudes of the hungry are being filled. These aren't acts that took place in secret. We've made that clear every single time. Jesus is not doing these miracles in back alleys. He's not hiding these things. He's putting them out there in the public. He's saying, if you had eyes to see, you wouldn't even be asking me these questions. And, and here's where we get into something that is foundational to the Christian faith. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26. Look at that. He says, but you, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is what we're going to call this morning, the grip of grace. And I know that's about as Kitschy and cliche, a title for a a sermon point as you can make, but we're calling it the grip of grace. This is Jesus articulating what we would also call the reformed doctrine of salvation. We see in this the doctrine of election. And I know we don't use that word a whole lot in our normal, our normal speak. We don't talk about doctrine everywhere we go, but doctrine is our system of faith. It's It's our system of belief. And 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 what he says here gives us a picture of election there in verse 26. So uh, uh, election is where Jesus identifies the ones who will hear in the present as those who were chosen in the past. It's that they hear because they are his sheep. They hear because they're his sheep. They've been marked out by God. They've been chosen by God. They've been claimed by God. You've probably heard it in, 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 in the past that, that the shepherds in that time, and they still do this, this isn't a foreign thing, they would mark their animals by taking a little piece out of their ear and each, each herd would have their own little marking on them. The idea of being elected, being chosen by God, it means that he's put his mark on his sheep and they are his. They've been marked out by him. We also see the doctrine of effectual calling in there when Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice. So it's, it's that those who have been chosen not only have the ability to hear, but that they actually do hear. It's that they do hear the voice of the shepherd. They haven't just been chosen, but they've actually been Called. We see the doctrine of justification in there when, when Jesus says, and I know my sheep. I know them. There's a relationship there in Christ. Those who are in him have, have been forgiven. They have been brought into the family. Their fractured relationship with the creator has been uh, restored. It's, it's been made new. And this continues. He just, It keeps going. This is a powerful couple of verses here. We see the doctrine of sanctification. Look there in 27 where Jesus says of his sheep that they... Follow me, this following, this following after Christ is this chasing after him. To follow is to come after someone. It means they're walking with him, becoming less and less, well, becoming less and less like ourselves and more and more like Jesus. We call that sanctification. You see, it's all there in just this section. We don't make up the Reformed doctrine of salvation or what people might call Calvinism. We didn't just create that because it was convenient. It's laid out right there. In fact, some people will go, well, Jesus never said it. Well, here we see that he did say this. He says, this is the way that it works, that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I know them. And he says, uh, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. There's glorification right there. that There's a future hope. It's that those in Christ are not only being made more and more like Christ, but as we follow him, he's leading us into glory, into eternal life. And I, I know that we tend to think of eternal life as, as a future event. We, we, that is our tendency, is to think of it as something that is... To come. It's like, like, having, uh, like being saved is having purchased the ticket now to get you into heaven. But Jesus presents eternal life as something that has begun now. One of the things the church needs to realize is that, is that salvation isn't a ticket to a future concert, but the music's already started playing. Right? The concert is happening now. If you are in Christ, you are in the concert. Jesus says they will never perish. It's that those who have been born again will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And so it's happened. It's happened. It has happened already. And it's that those who are in Christ are a new creation. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, right? That if you are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's important, isn't it? It's not He will be a new creation. It's that He is a new creation. Then He says the old has passed away. That has happened. The new has come. These are present realities. The old has passed away, and what Jesus says of the new creation is that they will never perish. But He doesn't say that it will always be easy. That's the tension that we still live in today. We live in the tension of of the fact that we are already saved, that we are already justified, already a new creation, but we exist in the tension of the not yet of this broken world. We see this all around us, and I know you feel that. Like I know you feel that this week. We're in political season. It is hard not to feel the brokenness with Election Day two days from now unless you have somehow managed to disconnect from all of your surroundings. We see this and we feel the tension of brokenness around us. It's there, it's palpable. Life will not always be easy for us. In fact, we see that here, right? If if, if life didn't go easy for Jesus, why would we ever expect that it would go easy for us? Let's be clear here. Jesus offers eternal life. He offers restoration with God. He offers the hope of being held in the grip of grace for all time. And their response, the world's response, was to pick up stones and attempt to end his life. And they don't even see the irony in that, which is just crazy. I'm offering you life, and their response is to end his life. Being chosen by God is a good thing, right? Right? That's a, I think we can all nod on that one again. I, it's okay. Being chosen by God is a good thing. Being saved by God is a good thing. Being called by name into the fold of Christ is a good thing, right? These are things that we would desire, things that would be a good thing for us to have. Being justified by Christ is a good thing. Being sanctified, being made more and more like Jesus is a good thing. Anyone looking at the world today would tell you that we need more people who look like Jesus in the world the world today. Being held to the end and glorified in heaven is a good thing. I think we would agree with that. These are all good things. They are good gifts that Jesus gives us, but they are only good if they are his to give us. And so here's where we see the being being in the grip of grace also brings with it the weight of truth. The Jews understand what Jesus is saying. We, We see that in 33. They say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see that in, they understand that in order for him to give these things that he is promising them, he can't just be a man. They understand that. They understand that he can't just be a guy from Nazareth. He can't just be a smart teacher here in the colonnade of Solomon. He can't just be a decent moral creature. In order to give the things that he is promising them, he has to be God. They understand his claim. They just hate him for saying it. You see, it wouldn't be enough for him to just be a great guy. He would have to be making himself God. And so they actually see Jesus as, to use some of the language from last week's passage, they see him as a thief. They see him as a robber. They see him as a liar, one who is there to steal and kill and destroy. Because in order to give what he's offering, he'd have to be God himself. That's the weight of the truth here. And it carries over for us today. It carries over for you and I right now. You see, what we need to understand is that if things did not go well for Jesus in this world... There is absolutely no reason for us to expect them to go well for us. Just remember all of the good things that Jesus did in his time on earth. Every once in a while, people will try and play this game. It's called the, like, the, the ladder to heaven. It's a, it's a, it used to be like a way of evangelizing. So you pick the like, worst person in all of human history, right? And, and, and everybody says Hitler or, or somebody like that. And, and, and that's just the easiest one to pick, right? And then they say, who's the greatest person? A lot of people go, well, oh, Mother Teresa was just a phenomenal human being, and I never met her, but she seemed great, okay? She did a lot of really neat things. And so somewhere in there is us, right? I fall somewhere in that ladder. And it's interesting, it's always interesting to me that even when you ask Christians this, who is the greatest person of all time, they don't immediately say Jesus. They pick somebody else. Oh man, my grandma was amazing. I mean, just a phenomenal human being. Or my high school coach, that guy did more for me than... Like, we, we pick all these people. We all, everybody universally says Hitler, by the way. Like, you rarely get anything other than him for worst human being of all time. But in, in here, picking the best, we rarely get Jesus mentioned. It's really interesting to me. We're talking about a man who, again, fed the hungry. A man who healed the lame. A man who did incredible things, things that were witnessed by masses of people, but like everything else good in life, it seems that those acts of love and mercy are often quickly forgotten. We tend to forget that Jesus was also an advocate for the poor and the needy, saying in Matthew 25, Truly I say to you as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. We forget that he was a friend to both the marginalized and the outcast that he went to the friendless and was willing to go into their house and eat. I remember a story about a little man in a tree. He welcomed the neglected and the abused to the tables of the rich and the powerful people. And you know what? They were disgusted by that. He didn't see the prostitute as someone to be avoided, but as someone to reach out to. He didn't see the beggar as a nuisance, but as an opportunity to demonstrate love and mercy. He didn't see hungry people as irresponsible, and those people really need to get their act together, but as those to whom he could provide for. That's the weight of the truth. That Jesus did more good in this world than we can even remember. That he was a servant to all, and that's who he calls his people to be. For every challenge, he saw a chance. For every hurt, he saw a hope. And for every prodigal, he saw the possibility of renewal and restoration. Jesus was the door, not for the perfect, but for the damaged. He's the shepherd, not for the lions of the world, but for the stupid sheep. He was the absolute best, the ultimate demonstration of the love of God And the way that the world responded was to pick up stones to throw at him. We see that here, right here in this passage. And what we know is that that the reward for his life of faith, for his life of hope, for his life of love, for his life of peace, would not be a castle, but it would actually be a cross. And yet you and I are still tempted to believe that we deserve better than what he received. Maybe I shouldn't put that on you. I'm still tempted to believe that I should receive better than what he did. But you see, the weight of truth, that being chosen in Jesus is our only hope, brings with it the tension of the world. We had this conversation with our community group just the other night. It's the truth that to be in Christ, to be in the Son of God, to be one of his children, means that we have an enemy in this world. I mean, I i, I want to just level with you. I, I I really like you people. Um, Some of you I don't know. I'd like to get to know you. I'd go so far as to say I love you people. And because I love you, I just want to be really, really honest with you. I I thank God uh, every single week for the privilege of serving you in this life. That's like a daily thankful thing for me. I I don't know a more welcoming, I don't know a more encouraging group of people on the planet than the ones sitting in this room right now. If you haven't gotten to know them, give them a shot. They're really great people, like anyone who's sitting around you. You can probably count on that person, okay? I just want you to know that. And because I love you, I want you to know uh, that if you are truly in Christ, it's not a question of if you will be persecuted. It's not a question of if you will experience hard times. It's not a question of, of hardship or, or tribulation. It's, it's just a matter of when and, and maybe for how long. You see, the weight of the truth brings with it the tension of the world. You you know, why would Jesus, think about this for just a second, why would Jesus promise his sheep that they would not be snatched from him unless there was an enemy trying to do the snatching? Why would Jesus ever promise his sheep that no one will snatch you out of my hand unless he knew there was somebody trying to snatch them? See, I never, I've never warned my children about what to do in the event of a T-Rex attack. I never have. I mean, we've watched movies where that definitely happens, right? Where the T-Rex gets loose, and now the T-Rex is the hero of those movies, so whatever. But anyway, um, and it's like, I've never called a family meeting and go, here, guys, this is what you do in the event of an apex prehistoric predator locking eyes on you. I've never called that meeting. Never at the dinner table, just going, listen, some things I need to tell you guys. I've never warned my kids, I'll be honest again, I've never warned them about what to do if an unextinct apex predator sets eye on them. And we literally take them to the zoo where those animals live and take for granted that tiger ain't going to jump 12 feet across that ravine. Some of your parents are like, dang, I never thought about that. If you ever lock eyes with that lion, he looks at you and lets you know right out of the gate that if I get a hold of you, it's game over. If you ever hear him roar, it'll make you feel real small. I've never warned my children about that. I don't warn my children about dangers that don't exist. But, but you know, I, I do train them to look left and right before crossing the street, Right? I do. I I, I do. I teach them. I I do hold their hands tightly in the busy parking lot. I do remind them to buckle their seatbelt whenever they ride in the car because while I love you guys, I don't trust a soul in this room on the road. Not in the age of smartphones, man. You're all the most dangerous human being I've ever met. I don't. See, why do we do that? Why do we hold their hands tightly? Why do we tell them to look left and right? Why do we, when we see the squirrel on, dead in the middle of the road, go, hey, we don't want that to be you? I've told you all before. like I, We've got a mail carrier who just loves to fly down our driveway. He's like trying to set a land speed record. And I've literally taken, Tucker was a little guy, I took him out there and go, you see that? That's why we don't play in the road right there. And he looked at me like, you have lost your mind. I'm like, I don't want that to be you, brother. Like, I want you to make it in this world. We warn them because we love them. Jesus is warning the sheep here because he loves them. And he knows there's an enemy coming for him. He knows that there's a fight. He knows that sin is always at the door. He knows that the enemy prowls around like a lion looking for something to seek and to kill and to destroy. He knows that. This is the heart of the good shepherd for his sheep. He knows there are dangers. He knows the fight is coming. He knows that wolves are coming after us. He knows that darkness will constantly try to snuff out the light. But, but what did John say at the beginning of his gospel? You remember that? He said the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, the light is still shining, even here in our passage, even as they pick up stones to kill him. So Jesus knows he knows that there will be a temptation for us, for his sheep, to doubt, for us to question his plan. The whole celebration of the Feast of Dedication, what we call Hanukkah today, by the way, um, was, was about remembering a victory of the past. That's the whole reason they're gathered there in Jerusalem. They're there to remember. You know, we do that because we're, people are forgetful. We're a forgetful species. We're pretty good at remembering the bad things. I don't know why that is, but we are, we are so good at remembering the bad things. But the good things t- seem to slip away from our minds almost as they happen. Like we'll forget a compliment before the person leaves the room, but we will hold on to a criticism with, with, our, with our dying breath that somebody offended us. why people need to pause to remember and christians especially need to pause to remember how the shepherd has led us how he has led us in the past and how he is leading us in the future how he has kept his hand on us even even when we try to wiggle away at times we need to recognize and remember that as his sheep we are in the grip of grace and so Jesus practices that here by giving us proof of the promise. Look back at verse 37. He says, "If, notice that if, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works." Again, he's saying, "Open your eyes." See, take a look around. Don't you remember what you have seen? Don't you remember these things that's been happening in your presence? It's the same for us today. In your moments of doubt, don't you remember how he's carried you? In your moments of fear, don't you remember how he has protected you? In your moments of shame, in your moments of guilt and shame, don't you remember how he came to you? how he called to you and how he has welcomed you. Don't forget what Jesus has done. I know you're going to experience seasons of doubt. Some of you might be, might be in a season like that right now. Like we have the tendency as people to doubt that what God has in store for us is really for our good and for his glory. Some of you might be questioning how in the world your present pain might be turned into future joy. I get that. Jesus tells us, look at the works. Look at the works. Don't forget what I've done because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. What? I have overcome the world. Paul said in Romans 8 that it's going to go bad for us. And he isn't speaking hypothetically. He's speaking from his experience in the past and in that moment, his present condition. Paul understood suffering. Like I know you've had some bad days. I I, I don't, I'm not trying to take that away from you. I, I understand that you have bad days, but I bet you haven't been shipwrecked and bitten by a snake on the same day. The idea of being bitten by a snake just terrifies me in general. The fact that I've survived the shipwreck, swam to the island on some debris, and somebody's about to cook lunch for me, and I think it's just about to be a better day, and then I get bitten by a snake makes us the worst day possible. He was bitten by a snake after being shipwrecked. And what he did was, he wrote to the church there in Rome, that even though this world would try to kill us, would try to steal joy, would try to destroy us, would try to slaughter the sheep. He said this, in all these things, the, these things is the mess, okay? It's the darkness of life. It's the, it's the stuff that we have to walk through that nobody plans, that people actively try to avoid, but it still somehow finds our door. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? This is from the shipwrecked snake-bitten man. That nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. He says that we're more than conquerors in all these things. In all this mess, the child of God is more than a conqueror. Why? How can we say that when we feel so weak so often? How can we say that when we know our incapability far more than we know our capacity to succeed in this life? He says it's because Jesus will not let us be snatched out of his hand. You hear that? It's not about how strong you are. It's not about how powerful you are. It's not about how capable you are. It's not about how smart you are. It's because he will not let us go. So we look to him on a daily basis. I'm telling you, you've got to look at Christ daily. Tim Keller says, as we look at him and rejoice in what he did for us, we will have the joy and hope necessary to follow the call of God when times seem at their darkest and most difficult. Listen, Christians don't have blind hope. We don't. We don't have a foolish faith. The proof of his promise is that that he has chosen, that he has called, that he has justified, and that Even right now, he is sanctifying us. And he keeps his promises, promises to bring us all the way home one day. Not by our strength, but because he holds us with the very hand of God. You see, that's good news. That's another good thing. It's good news for us every single day. Let us fearlessly live in the grip of His grace, being held by the weight of the truth that He has, and He will, and He does, and holding on to the proof of His promise that is the fact that He would call one like you to Himself. It's a good thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You would call my name that by your grace and only your grace alone, that you would identify any single person in this room, and that you would come and you would pay the penalty for our sin, that you would come and take my guilt and my shame upon yourself, that you, wouldn't, that you wouldn't sit up there expecting me to get right, but that you would come down here and be right for me, and that you would still accept me in my weakness and in my failing. Lord, help us to walk in the truth that we have not and never can earn your grace. We cannot and never have earned your earn your salvation. Help us to walk as people thankful for the fact that you have and that you will continue to carry us all the way till the end. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.